Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. We are honored today to be joined by award-winning journalist and best-selling author William D. Cohen. As a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, Bill has proven himself to be one of the most meticulous and intrepid journalists working today, a truly great reporter covering the intersection between Wall Street and Washington. Bill has also written for the Financial Times, the New York Times, Bloomberg Businessweek, The Atlantic, The Nation, Fortune, and Politico. In addition, Bill is the author of The Secret History of Lazard, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street about the last days of Bear Stearns, Wall Street, Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, The Price of Silence about the Duke University lacrosse scandal, and Why Wall Street Matters. Bill joins us today to talk about his latest book, Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short, which will be available this week. Bill Cohen, welcome back to Words Matter. It's great to be here, Adam. Thank you. Also joining us today is Words Matter Library co-host, Dr. Gordon Goldstein. Wonderful to be here, as always. Bill, as we noted, you are an accomplished journalist and a chronicle of Wall Street, finance, politics, university scandal. But this book is something very different. Tell us about Four Friends. Well, Adam, I intentionally set out to uh, write a very different book. The first four books that I wrote, one about Lazard, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, and um, my alma mater, Duke, and the lacrosse scandal, uh, had an unfortunate byproduct of pissing off a lot of people uh, <laughs> who, I, who I wrote about. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's an important job that journalists do, and I don't have any uh, problem doing that job. In fact, I uh, enjoy, as uh, uh, the old uh, proverb goes, to uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So I don't have any problem with that. But I thought, you know, I was going to take a deep breath and uh, perhaps write a book that was more of a, a memoirish uh, homage to my friends who I had unfortunately noticed uh, with all too much uh, regularity had number of whom had died young and tragically. And I thought to myself, uh, well, I, I, I owe it uh, to them, uh, to their memory, and to sort of the age that one inevitably becomes uh, if one's lucky. At a certain point, you begin to realize that this little thing called life is not going to go on forever for anybody. And, and in fact, no one gets out alive. And so uh, I thought it was appropriate in my career and my time and my, my life to pay homage to these four friends, thinking also that uh, uh, now that you know, they're not here, they probably won't be able to criticize me for what I write, <laughs> write about them. But uh, on a serious note, I, I wanted uh, both a, a way to pay homage to them and also have a serious reporting challenge because obviously they're not being here forced me to triangulate about the, uh, around their lives talking to their former wives girlfriends uh, friends uh, classmates whatever uh, uh, and except for John Kennedy Jr. there really wasn't a lot of documentation in the public sphere about the other three. So it was at once both a way to remember them and to keep myself intellectually challenged. To that point, you know, we have a requirement here at Words Matter that you can't interview an author about a book without actually reading the book. I mean, it should be common sense, but you do enough uh, media that you know. That Doesn't that's always a, happen. Not always the case. Yeah. Uh, so, Gordon, I really appreciate that, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> we spent the last week or so immersed in Four Friends, which is not only beautifully written and thoroughly researched, but it's, it's also... In, intensely poignant and personal. And I've known you for more than a decade now. And I learned, I think I learned more about you in the last seven days than, than I, I by knew. the way, my parents said the same thing <laughs> uh, uh, about what they've learned about my time at Andover than they ever knew before. <laughs> That's great. And, and so I guess the question is, was this more difficult for you, uh, a challenge than, than your previous uh, five books? You're right. It was, it was definitely more of a personal book. I, approached it journalistically, however, uh, and somewhat clinically uh, as a result, and therefore dispassionately, I felt I just frankly had to do what I had to do without the emotion to get to the bottom of what happened to my four friends, how they lived before they died, and, and then how they died. And I didn't really know much about any of the circumstances. All I knew is that sort of 
One day we were friends, then we sort of went our separate ways, and we'd stay in touch occasionally, episodically, because, you know, there was no social media, there was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was no any way to keep in touch with people. If you didn't have somebody's payphone in their college dorm, you, you couldn't stay in touch, and then who does that anyway? And then number two is, you know, guys don't really get, write guys' letters. Some do, but, you know, not often. So it was totally episodic. And then, you know, unfortunately, one by one, I would hear through basically the end over a bulletin, the twice a year magazine that came out about the school and the alumni, you know, what had happened to my friends. Uh, and so uh, it just sort of dawned on me at one point that I have to try to write this and and, and remember them. And but I, but I also realized that I had to be journalistic about it. And if you can imagine, I mean, it, it, it especially in the case of uh, uh, Jack Berman's widow and Harry Bull's widow, I mean, Will Daniel didn't have a wife. Uh, and, of course, John died with his wife. Uh, having those conversations uh, was extremely moving uh, and difficult. And, you know, I went out to San Francisco to see Jack Berman's widow and to Chicago to see Harry Bull's widow and in both cases at their homes uh, and had those conversations and uh, incredibly moving and challenging on a personal basis. I mean, I obviously couldn't have done it without their cooperation. And, but that was, that was the, those two moments were the most challenging. In a moment, we're going to turn to these four narratives these four friends, the four lives cut short. But before we do, I think it's important for you to talk about another character in the book, which is Phillips Academy Andover. Mm -hmm. And in full disclosure, uh, I should acknowledge that I attended Phillips Academy Andover, uh, not during your era, but not long after. And it's a distinct and special institution in American secondary education. Before we get to the narrative, talk about the school, why you think it's unique and its impact on you personally in the course of your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I I loved Andover. I think I was lucky to go at a time where Andover was just sort of uh, transitioning away from decades of being uh, sort of stuck in the mud uh, and being really strict and old-fashioned to being totally liberated uh, after the merger with uh, Abbott Academy, the girls' school, and, and a new headmaster, Ted Sizer, taking over and finally figuring out how to assimilate the 60s uh, and what had happened across the country in the 60s, which Andover tried to avoid admitting it really happened. And we should acknowledge it's the oldest secondary school in the United States. That is true. And uh, its uh, a seal, its silver seal, was designed by Paul Revere, and George Washington went out of his way to make sure that his nephews attended uh, Andover. And it was founded, uh, I discovered, and really fascinating story, which I could have written more about but chose not to, or the editors chose to take <laughs> some of that out, uh, but by, uh, you know, this Calvinist family, this Phillips family that really had prospered tremendously under British colonial rule and uh, during the revolutionary period saw that perhaps this was going to change. And so they went about creating Andover to try to preserve the old ways in the face of the American Revolution. And, you know, this sort of Calvinist, which, you know, severe religious backdrop to Andover, you know, by, by the time I got there in 1973, had, uh, you know, completely, you know, washed away, but was in the DNA somewhere. Uh, anyway, I, I found it to be a extraordinary place, uh, you know, incredibly ecumenical. Everybody welcomed uh, everybody else from various different backgrounds uh, uh, and just very intellectual and open and yet competitive. And literally, I, some of my best friends to this day went there. And it's important to note that it was a school not designed to be a school only for the elite, but according to the charter of the school, from youth, youth, youth from, from every, every, every quarter. quarter. Youth from every quarter. Some phases of their existence, they were better do, do, doing a better job of that than others. And I think now they do a particularly good job. I think literally starting with Ted Sizer, they uh, really began to open the place up into the modern era. Really, it opened up the world for me. I, had, I was a very sheltered kid from central Massachusetts, went to a school literally where there were 10 kids in the whole class. Like my eighth grade class had 10 kids in it. 
So uh, to go to a place like Andover, I've been on my own since I was 13 as a result. So the good news is I've been independent and self-sufficient for a long time. And I thank my parents for you know, giving me that huge opportunity. Wanted my kids to have that, but my wife intelligently said, no, no way. Uh, and so I got to have my kids for high school. Well, I, I did not attend Andover, um, but I did. We'll I forgive you. <laughs> I, I, I did attend a, a, a fairly good public school in northern Westchester called John Jay Cross River. I think you actually had a descendant of John Jay. Uh, Andover. That's right. One of my classmates, Jay, Jay, Will Islin, Will, Jay Islin's son, was a descendant of John Jay. And, and uh, I think our, our two most distinguished alumni are Stanley Tucci and uh, Roger Stone, neither of whom okay. were famous when I went there. But I was looking through again in, in preparing for this interview. And I, you know, in addition to the two presidents, both Bushes, you have three Nobel laureates, six Medal of Honor winners, scores of congressmen, senators, governors, cabinet. You even have a football coach who's won six Super Bowls. Bill Belichick. The only sports figure Andover produced in – <laughs> 200 of, of plus note. years. I'm, I'm a Giants fan and a New Yorker, so I'm not so allowed to say it. Hurts. Like, it hurts to say it. So. <laughs> and you talk about that mo- the, the seal and the motto, and, and there's the Latin phrase which translates and as you point out in the book, the end depends on the beginning. Explain that setting and the ethos of that as the backdrop for this meeting place and for the shaping of the characters that we're going to talk about in a minute. The campus itself is so extraordinary. Uh, the physical plant, the way that the physical plant got established uh, uh, through an incredibly generous gift of Thomas Corcoran, who used to work, was a J.P. Morgan partner in the days when J.P. Morgan himself ran the bank. So more, you're, more like a college than, than a without, high school? Uh, without, without question. I mean, more like a, not even like a small New England college, like a big New England college. So you're um, immediately hit with the physical plant, which is just incredibly uh, beautiful, and and, uh, the architecture is stunning. And then you're sort of struck by the intelligent wit and wisdom of your classmates and and the fellow students. Arts uh, and and creativity were a premium was put on all of that, and and so you're just amazed at the uh, talent of your fellow students. And then, obviously, the the care that went into the teaching. Uh, and the nurturing of the mind, uh, as well as the body, that was always important. I unfortunately failed uh, dramatically at the body part, but uh, uh, <laughs> the, 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 you know the, the way they nurtured all parts of your being in this atmosphere. One of the stories I wanted you to tell from that time in your life was um, you, you self-deprecating in the athletic department, but you uh, ran the school newspaper. You were business. Well, I was a business manager. The business yes. manager yes. at school newspaper. And you'd, you'd, you'd done pretty well, and you'd gotten some great advertisers, and you had a celebratory dinner. I, I'd love to yeah. you to talk about that, because I, I, I love reading about it. The school newspaper called The Philippian was independent of the school. Literally, uh, it was produced on a weekly basis, and uh, our budget was the money that we raised through advertising and subscriptions. We got no money from the school. Uh, the school sort of monitored what we were doing after the fact, so they would sort of critique the paper on a weekly basis, but afterwards. They didn't try to censor anything in advance, and so that was it was truly independent. We had unbelievable responsibility, and, and I sort of worked my way up to become the business manager of the paper, uh, which meant that I was responsible for you know raising all the money uh, through advertising and subscriptions, and then uh, paying paying all the bills uh, and bringing the paper every week to to Cambridge, where it was printed at the Harvard Crimson. So I'd get a great night out in Cambridge in Harvard Square, which allowed for a lot of frolicking uh, and hanging out with the Crimson types. Uh, and it was great. It was just a great experience. And then um, at the end of uh, our tenure, which is spring to spring, so uh, there's like one trimester left where you hand the old board, hands create names the new board, so they have a, a semester or a trimester to perform, and if they have any questions or need any help, you, you know, the old board can, can help. Uh, and so there's a, a handoff uh, ceremony uh, by uh, uh, tradition at the headmaster's house, uh, this case, Ted Sizer's house, one morning, like one Saturday morning, uh, where the old board names the new board. So prior to that, that Friday night, I decided that the board, because we had made so much money, uh, we should all go to this incredibly fancy place in Boston called Lockover's, which was then literally the nicest restaurant in Boston. 
And about a week before the dinner, I went to Fred Stott, who was the secretary of the academy, who was my liaison uh, to the financial side of the academy. And I said, you know, Fred, I'm thinking about having this dinner for uh, the Andover, old Andover board. And, he, and I didn't give him any of the details. I wasn't going to give him any of the details. <laughs> and, I, and, and, he, and I remember he went to, like, the shelf and took off this old dusty volume from 17, you know, 89 or whatever, which was like the constitution of the of Andover uh, uh, Academy. Uh, and he's, like, blowing the dust off the book. And he opens it to some page and he says, oh, yeah. So it says here that when the trustees are in town, you should give them an adequate but not excessive accommodation. And he says, well, as long as it's adequate and not excessive, you have my permission. So I took adequate <laughs> but not excessive to mean that I could, of course, take everybody to lockovers. And I had arranged in advance to uh, uh, use a check drawn on the, the Philippians uh, bank account uh, to pay off. It was like $1,500. And needless to say... We ate and drank uh, excessively to our heart's content, and this is $1,977, uh, $1,500 is a lot of money. And somehow we all made it back to Andover. But then the next morning, we go over to Ted Sizer's house, and he pulls me aside, and he said, I hear you had quite a dinner last night. And that was it. I mean, he could have busted us all right then. Like No one had tweeted about it. He had to hear from some other way. I have no <laughs> idea how he heard about it. He could have busted uh, us all, but he just sort of let it. Let it fly, chalked it up to high school hijinks and, you know, creativity. And I guess he figured anybody who can, you know, get themselves to lock over and pay for a fancy dinner for all these uh, uh, kids who had worked hard for a year deserves to just get a free pass. Well, so now for the stories of your four friends. And you alluded to this, but I wanted to read what you wrote in the book. You said, I have tried to report my friends' stories as honestly and responsibly as I've previously told the stories of Lazard. Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, and the Duke lacrosse scandal. I decided early on that the greatest gift I could give my old friends was sharing with others the truths of their lives, at least as best as I could figure them, for as long as they were with us. So let's talk about Jack Berman, Will Daniel, Harry Bull, and John F. Kennedy Jr. Let's start with Jack. Gordon? Well, what was remarkable to me, Bill, about the narrative surrounding Mr. Berman was the enormous trajectory of his life from his parents being Holocaust survivors to him being a first-generation student in this incredibly elite and privileged environment. And it represents the best of the school's ideals, uh, and his demise underscores this incredible theme in the book of human fragility and how arbitrary life can be. Um, tell us about his parents and then tell us about the guy. Jack's parents, they were such archetypes of these incredible immigrants who had survived the Holocaust and met and, and gave birth to Jack's older brother uh, in the uh, camp uh, in Germany after the war. And then they came and, and, uh, to this country, first to, to the Bronx, and then they were moved out to a farm in rural Connecticut where they became egg farmers. They literally seemed otherworldly to us, and we thought of ourselves as sort of you know, modern and hip young kids of the 70s. Uh, seems sort of funny to even <laughs> say that. Uh, but uh, they obviously were, uh, you know, remarkable uh, people and, uh, you know, instilled uh, in their their children. You know, it was great that I got the cooperation of Jack's uh, older brother, who uh, literally told me how he raised Jack because he was the bridge between his parents who spoke only Yiddish and America where, you know, you had to speak English and they wanted Jack to be a rabbi. And, and it's just an incredible story and, the, and how the, the older brother, uh, Norman, d decided that Jack was so gifted and needed to have a bigger platform than just becoming the rabbi in rural Connecticut that his parents thought he might be and decided, you know, that's it. You know, where can we go? Where can this guy with this incredible intellect uh, who's proven himself over and over again to be gifted, where can he go? And they just hopped in the car, drove to Andover. It was after the admissions uh, process had come and gone, and basically through the force of personality got uh, Jack into to Andover and got him a partial scholarship. And, you know, then he was sort of off to the races from there. That drive seems like such an American story. Where can you sort of transcend every path or every obstacle in your way? So Jack went on to have a distinguished academic career, 
went to law school and then had a uh, uh, a fast rising legal career in San Francisco. Worked for uh, you know a well relatively well known uh, law firm in uh, San Francisco, sort of representing corporate clients. And then he kind of had a change of heart and uh, decided that uh, his calling in life would be to represent. Uh, the little person against the big corporation. And this required his law firm to allow him to do this, to carve out a little part of their practice to allow him uh, to do this. And he was very focused on uh, employment law, something that we now know is a very important aspect of, of law, allowing people who feel they've been dismissed improperly from their firm to have a voice. And it's a very interesting group of people who who provide that uh, legal service. And so Jack really thought he was uh, helping people who were uh, had misfortunes at the hand of big corporations. And so uh, he was representing this uh, one woman who uh, had been fired by EDS and been sort of treated very badly by EDS. Ross Perot's, Ross Perot's computer firm uh, before Ross Perot sold it and before he ran for president and all that. And he was uh, representing this woman named Jody Spazzato against EDS and... Uh, well, frankly, to cut to the chase, uh, there's obviously more to the story than than, than just this. But uh, one one morning uh, uh, in uh, uh, 1993, he was uh, uh, at uh, EDS's law firm uh, at 101 California Street in downtown San Francisco, and uh, he was uh, there to monitor Jody's deposition uh, that was being taken by the lawyer EDS lawyers, and. Uh, uh, it's, you know, fate would have it. This guy who had uh, had a feud with the law firm had gone into the law firm. You know, no one approached him uh, carrying a bag of semi-automatic weapons that he had spent uh, the few few weeks prior to this time assembling. Uh, he was uh, obviously completely uh, a lunatic uh, as, uh, you know, I pieced together his background and his life and the, the statements that he had made uh, prior to, to all of this. And uh, he just uh, took out those automatic weapons and just started shooting uh, the lawyers, uh, uh, any lawyers that he could find on the floors of this law firm. Jack and Jody uh, and a bunch of other lawyers were in this one conference room and the curtains were drawn, but he just started firing the automatic weapons uh, into the into the uh, conference room. And uh, unfortunately, both uh, Jack and Jody uh, were killed, uh, not instantly, but within like 15 minutes. And then it's the story of Jack's widow trying to figure out Jack was supposed to have gone from San Francisco to Los Angeles to work on another case. And, you know, among such mundane things as, you know, where did he park their car? Who was going to pick up their young son? Uh, and trying to piece together through the course of this day, which must have been an incredible nightmare of magnificent proportions, unimaginable proportions, what had happened to her husband. Every narrative in this book is poignant, but this one, for me, was so troubling that his parents could have survived the Holocaust, and they could have lived some variant of the American dream, and their son could have prospered so much and died in such an arbitrary and sudden way. And with zero degree of error in judgment and judgment yes. and all of that. I mean, we'll get, we'll get to Right. No, yeah. no errors in judgment, nothing, no pattern of behavior that would lead to this and we will you know talk about about that but we did get out of it the you know assault weapons ban was passed the next year in 1994 uh, unfortunately a compromise was reached and it expired after 10 years which is why it ended in 2004 and why we do not have an assault weapons ban today when of course we badly need one uh that's so obvious uh, and, and that became even more obvious to me after I researched and wrote Jack's story. And it's just mindless that we can possibly have a, have a, a society without an assault weapons ban. It just goes to me to show uh, how um, inept our leadership is. Yeah, I, I actually lived in San Francisco for 10 years, worked two blocks from that building, passed it every day on my walk home. And what's amazing about where we are on that issue is I, until I read your book, I was completely unaware that that had even happened. Um, hmm. We had Shannon Watts on this program a few weeks ago, and she talked about things like that that were would be major in any other country, 
remembered for decades and they're quickly forgotten. There's no, I mean, I just can't believe that there's no plaque on the side of 101 California. There's nothing. nothing. There's no way you would ever know that this had happened. Scores of lives were ruined as a result of this incident. The next character that you talk about and friend that you talk about is a man named uh, Will Daniel. And I personally found Will to be the most complex character with the most unanswered questions, both in his life and then eventually how he died. You describe Will's grandfather, uh, President Harry Truman, as a pretty stern and unforgiving grandparent. Uh, talk about the relationship uh, between Will and, and his grandfather, his famous grandfather, and how it affected the choices he made and how he presented himself and, and what he eventually did with his life. Well, his mother was Margaret Truman Daniel, right? The only child of the Trumans. Uh, his father was Clifton Daniel, who was a longtime uh, foreign correspondent of the New York Times, eventually managing editor of the New York Times, and then uh, Washington bureau chief and, you know, real sort of uh, a dashing uh, man about town. And the two of them were an incredible dashing uh, couple and they lived in a you know triplex apartment on park avenue uh will went to uh saint bernard's uh andover and yale uh he uh was one of their four sons uh they i don't think they were the most attentive parents by design i think they just didn't believe in that uh i think it was a different era no helicopter parents they will was uh, his brothers say, you know, the, the smartest of the family. One of the uh, brothers was severely mentally disabled, which uh, created a big conflict between Will and his father about the way he should be uh, uh, cared for. Will spent his life, I mean, in such dramatic fashion in a way that I had not even realized until I r reported and wrote this. He spent his entire life running from his family. The, 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 he hated uh, being outed as uh, a Truman's uh, grandson, uh, not because he necessarily disagreed with Truman's policies as president or, or, or anything. I mean, he wasn't embarrassed, you know, like I imagined, say, a Trump grandchild might be <laughs> embarrassed. About. We, we laugh, but <laughs> yeah. it's macabre uh, laughter. Uh, that uh, he just did not want people to think that he had these kind of connections. And he hated when and he would never tell people that he was Harry Truman's uh, grandson, and he could get away with it. That was the incredible thing, because he looked like Greg Allman. I went back and looked at the pictures yeah. after reading your, your book of, of his him, Will and his brother at his grandfather's funeral, and you had it with the long hair and the, this blonde. He did. He looked like Greg Allman. He, he looked like, and, he, and he, his skin was almost albino, almost translucent, I mean, in Andover, and he was in my dorm. I mean, I mean, we just could not have been more different, right? I mean, eventually I realized that he was Harry Truman's grandson and Clifton Daniel's son, but you know, he looked like Greg Allman. He always had this affect of being stoned or something. I mean, just spacey, intellectual, out there, creative. And, you know, and I was like this straight-laced kid from Worcester, Massachusetts. And so we couldn't have been more different. But, uh, you know, he was a fast-paced guy from, from New York, took to the whole uh, Andover uh, atmosphere very quickly. But he just, you know, could have he, – he was a very good writer. Uh, you know, he could have been involved in politics. He could have done any of those things. While all of our friends were busy becoming investment bankers or whatever – and using their connections that were made in Andover and elsewhere and his family to sort of get ahead in their own careers. He just ran from all that every step of the way. He worked with homeless men uh, who were suffering from AIDS. He worked with homeless voters and tried to get them enrolled. I mean, he he worked at the NRDC. He did all of these things. You know, he could have done anything. But he was a very sort of itinerant soul, very restless soul. It took him 10 years to finish his Yale undergraduate thesis, and they weren't going to let him graduate because, like, the statute of limitations was running out. And, and somehow he got it done. Nobody can remember what it was about or how he did it. There was a story you told about him, which I felt summed him up in a way. It was sometime, I believe, in the 80s that the United States Navy had retrofitted the USS Missouri a uh, battleship that um, obviously his grandfather, being from Missouri, took great pride in. And I believe that they even signed the uh, – they accepted the Japanese surrender on that on that ship. And his family, his mother in particular, but his entire family was invited to San Francisco to 
rechristen that ship, something she had done years and years earlier. As um, a young woman. As a young woman. Tell us what Will was wearing when he showed up and what happened. First of all, they, they rechristened it with nuclear weapons. And uh, Will was very much against nuclear weapons uh, and nuclear energy and the use of nuclear power. He was very much caught up in the whole no nukes uh, movement, which, you know, most people don't even know what that means anymore. Uh, but there was a time when uh, there was a lot of activism around that. And so so I guess the, 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 the Navy or whatever sends a plane to take the family out. And, and he was uh, with there was sort of a, a woman who he'd befriended at Yale, who also who later worked at Goldman. Uh, they were never boyfriend and girlfriend, but they were very close. And so whenever it came to these sort of events, he would invite her to go with him. Uh, and and so he invited her to go with him, and she, of course, got a whole new wardrobe to go to this event, and Will you know, refused to, 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 to dress up or to do anything that might uh, be proper. And, and she would say to him, well, now, like, Will, uh, you've got to contain yourself. You know, you're going to the ceremony with, with your family, you know, the Navy and this person and that person, this dignitary, and, and they are rechristening the Missouri, and it does have nuclear weapons. Can you keep it together? Can you just not be Will Daniel that I know and love who's going to be disruptive uh, to this whole ceremony? And he kept saying, I, you know, I think I can do it. I, I'd like to believe I can do it. I'm not sure I can do it, but I'm going to go thinking that I can do it. And, of course, he couldn't do it. So, I mean, uh, he totally disrupted the whole thing. They were like protesters protesting the whole ceremony. And he said that, you know, he would have loved to have been on the other side protesting with them. And eventually he took off. He could not be there. And, he, and you know, they couldn't go back on the on the plane. Uh, because they had blown that opportunity up. So <laughs> it was uh, classic Will Daniel. Determined to reject his privilege. In every way possible. And died in a bizarre accident. Yeah, he had started dating uh, this, uh, I mean, I'm never married. He and this uh, the girlfriend at the time, there was a party being thrown in Brooklyn by uh, some of the people he worked with up at Columbia. Uh, and so he went to that and then... Uh, he asked this woman if he could stay over at her apartment that night. It was going to, you know, he's going to be some late night, two in the morning, typical Will Daniel, drinking a lot, coming back from Brooklyn late, late at night. And she said, no, actually, I have to get up the next morning, get on a train and go to my grandmother's 90th birthday party up in Connecticut. And, you know, so I'd rather if you didn't stay there. So she happened to live sort of near uh, the family's apartment on Park Avenue. So he called his mother and said, can I stay here tonight? And, of course, she said yes. And, uh, he, you know, he took the subway at like 2.45 in the morning back from Brooklyn, got off at Lexon 77th Street, and then walked, uh, you know, two blocks uh, west to the, the, you know, the west side of Park Avenue to the to the old homestead, they called it. And as he was crossing the lanes going on north on Park Avenue, uh, he got hit, uh, hit by a cab, uh, hoisted onto the uh, front of the cab and hitting his head against the windshield of the cab and rolling off into the street at 2.45 in the morning, right in front of his mother's apartment. You know, next thing you know, he's sent off to the hospital and uh, never really regained uh, consciousness. Uh, uh, and then uh, three or four days later, they decided to sort of pull the plug uh, and donate his organs to medicine. You know, some people wondered during the course of the reporting and research whether he had deliberately thrown himself into the path of a cab. Seems something we'll never know, a little far-fetched. Uh, uh, but how many 41-year-old guys are sort of, you know, partying in Brooklyn at 2.45 the morning and going back and staying at their mother's apartment on Park Avenue? He was just itinerant and a uh, some would say a lost soul, uh, you know, but obviously from this extraordinary pedigree and had every opportunity in the world. Uh, I wouldn't say squandered it, just went his own way and did his own thing and just ran from it as much as he could. I mean, people just aren't wired that way anymore. They sort of take every advantage they can. He just wouldn't do that. Of the four, Harry Bull seemed to me to fit, at least in my mind, the stereotype of a student you might expect to find at an elite boarding school in the 1970s, uh, intelligent guy, nonetheless, he was a legacy. You describe, you say, while not the Kennedys of Massachusetts or the Trumans of Missouri, the Bulls of Illinois were in their own way 
a shining example of Midwestern American rectitude and values. I thought that was an elegant way of putting it. And I found it interesting that unlike the others, Harry seemed to be a little bit of a throwback in, in, in a way. And it felt – maybe I'm describing it accurately, which is my question, is this accurate, is the counterculture of the 70s, he seemed to – he was a conservative guy. He seemed to be a little bit out of place in a sense. I think politically, he was definitely out of place for Andover in the 70s. It was in Massachusetts. I mean, you know, not that far from Cambridge. We were kind of hopeless in that regard. We were just these, you know, liberal lefties. Uh, Harry, being from fairly well-to-do family in Chicago, owned a, 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 a very old paper company uh, that has obviously uh, since fallen on hard times and been sold. They had this rectitude uh uh and harry was literally the only politically conservative guy i had been made aware of uh you know in my life to that point you didn't know they existed i didn't even know they existed i mean i (laughs) you know i grew up you know with the kennedys and paul songus and you know governor dukakis but harry he was for reagan he worked for philip crane as a washington intern and he was a conservative guy but he didn't lord it over you it was more like an intellectual thing right creative and interesting and stimulating it wasn't like us against them it was it was much more oh a different, a different viewpoint isn't harry sort of interesting in that regard and he's so smart i mean off the charts genius but in terms of sort of his uh, his enthusiasm, shall we say, for partying and for right. breaking the rules. That he wasn't and, out of place. That, right. that he was not out of place <laughs> in any way. You refer to this throughout the book. There was a fairly, how should I say, libertine culture that consumed mass quantities. Uh, just talk about that for a second. It was part of the era, but it seemed to sure. permeate everything. It was a way of Andover throwing off the shackles uh, of the, the strict rules that it lived under. Uh, under the headmaster before uh, Ted Sizer, uh, even though the 60s had occurred, Andover just pretended they didn't occur. Drugs uh, and alcohol are kind of rampant. The drinking age was 18. Harry was the youngest in our class, but I was the second youngest. And uh, uh, I was never 18 at Andover, so I could never, never uh, never partake, at least in that way. How did we ultimately lose Harry? Oh, I mean, this is the most painful and tragic of all. Um, Harry uh, got his act together in a big way, became a partner at at Winston & Strawn, a big Chicago law firm, moved to the New York office, became a partner. And on the day he became a partner, his father called him up and said, you know, I want you to come back to the family business, Uh, you know, as first as general counsel, and then eventually worked his way up to CEO of the company. And his wife, Pam, uh, they had uh, two young daughters, and she wanted to move back to Chicago. I think Harry wanted to move back. You know, he just achieved this uh, great ambition to become a partner at Winston & Strawn and bl- blew it all off and just went back to his better lifestyle in the, their family's uh, paper company and um, quickly worked his way up to be the CEO. And Harry always liked to go sailing, you know, at various places. You know, they would sail to the Caribbean. They'd rent a boat. And 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 the father and he, he and his brothers uh, brother had uh, this little small fiberglass sailboat that you know they they were they were midwestern frugality they they had money but they didn't like to display it in any ostentatious way just just absolutely that was against the rules Harry liked to go out uh, sailing on Lake Michigan which is like an ocean it's not like a lake it's like an ocean and. Uh, so uh, one day in August uh, 1999, three weeks or so after John Kennedy Jr. died, uh, went out what was supposed to be an overnight sailing trip on this little you know, fiberglass 20-something foot boat with him and his two daughters, two young daughters who were you know, roughly you know, six and four. You know, it was a beautiful August uh, uh, summer day, uh, and they were supposed to you know, follow this path up the uh, west coast of Lake Michigan. And, you know, I guess in the family, they had this 
uh, inane tradition of uh, going swimming off the back of the boat. And of course, you can't anchor a boat in Lake Michigan. It's like 700 feet deep in some places. Uh, and uh, they would also make the additional uh, mistake of not throwing life preservers into the water, or sometimes throw life preservers into the water, but not always. So they'd go swimming. So it's like this beautiful summer sun, you know, afternoon. They were hot. They decided to go swimming. And when, when, of course, we'll never know really what happened. But long story short, uh, they, they were all found themselves off the boat. Uh, the boat drifted away, and they all drowned. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody really knows what happened or why. There was this, you know, Coast Guard search, all this search on this vast ocean of Lake Michigan. And, and it became a huge media uh, sensation in in Chicago, a CEO of this company uh, and his two young daughters missing in Lake Michigan. And absolutely heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. I this, you know... Uh, I can only imagine, I just can't even imagine what she, just ha having her tell me the story was bre breaking my heart every second that it was happening. You mentioned John Jr., that question, the most well-known of your four friends. I thought I had read everything there was to know about the Kennedys, but as usual, when I read a Bill Cohen piece of writing, I find that even if I have extensive firsthand knowledge of something, I learn something new. And so talk about that for a minute. You were a, a, a kid from Massachusetts and you wind up in boarding school and you live in the same house with him? Yes, I was mm -hmm. his, he came in as uh, what they called uppers, uh, he, which is you know, junior year and I was a senior and I was one of his blue key advisors, which was one of his senior guys to show him the ropes at the beginning. Uh, and so I was, you know, introduced to him immediately and had to sort of help him navigate the waters for a little bit. Yeah, a lot has been written about John Jr. over the years. And I know that my family, my mother and my family always followed John from his earliest days. And you do a beautiful job of talking about that. What do you know and what did you get to know about John Kennedy Jr. that in the context of of friendship in high school? And then on that the rest of us don't know. I guess my experience with him, and by the way, I purposefully have not played up the fact that he's uh, one of the four friends. Right. Uh, you know, this is not a JFK right. Jr. 20th anniversary of his and, death. And book. in fairness, it is the last of the four narratives. Right. It is the he last of the four narratives on, on purpose. You know, I didn't want people just to read about John and then not read the rest. I suppose you could go just to that section and not read the rest, but... The, the idea of the book is it sort of builds upon itself and you're trying to figure out what do these four friends have in common? Why are they in this book? I thought you did a really nice job of not foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. And, and yeah. also you, you, when you talk about John, you don't build it up any more than you talk about Will's family and his grandfather. In some ways, I think you actually, I did a word count. You mentioned Harry Truman far more than you mentioned John F. Kennedy. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the things I was struck by is you got to John as a person. And so for people who had never met him, describe a little bit about uh, how he came across. I mean, uh, uh, you know, this, 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 this buildup of who he is, I mean, preceded him. Even as he and Jackie were walking down the path to our dorm, we were all, you know, our noses uh, uh, glued to the windows looking out at the pathway. Uh, and his arrival was huge news on this campus where this is the campus of the Bushes and the, the Stimpsons and, you know, you name it, uh, Jack Lemon, uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart. I mean, so, but this guy had just, and this is just a fact, I mean, he just had extraordinary charisma, extraordinary star power. I mean, Frankly, sometimes I think of uh, that line in, in the Shawshank Redemption, uh, where you know they're talking about Andy Red's talking about Andy Dufresne. Some people's feathers are just too bright, and I think with John, his feathers were so bright. There were stories of him going to like an opening of a John Travolta movie, where John Travolta is like the star of the movie, and all the press would be focused on John. I mean, the the wattage that he would bring to every circumstance and every interaction was extraordinary. But he. He was, honestly, for all of that, he was the most sort of 
uh, funny, uh, regular guy, bright, witty, sense of humor, utterly forgetful. I mean, he like lived in a bubble. You know, I tell stories about how he never had any money. He borrowed money from me. He'd always lose his wallet. He'd lose his pants. I mean, the guy. I mean, the guy grew up. He's the only uh, uh, a child ever born to a president elect. He literally grew up in the White House. Uh, and then he had to leave the White House under tragic circumstances, obviously. He'd always been, you know, ever since he saluted at his father's uh, funeral, he, he always... His third birthday. His third birthday. People adopted him, America's child, and he was always in the spotlight. Always, 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 always. And the wattage that he would bring to every situation. One of his uh, friends from Brown told me about how he, he could watch as people's behavior would change as asymptotically they got closer to John to try to be in that orbit. Uh, and I just could watch people's behavior change. When we were dorm mates, I mean, people, he was just like a regular guy at that point, and there was no none of that pretense. But I, I just found him to be another Andover student in that, in that way. I mean, frankly, a, a little uh, less uh, gifted uh, academically. Uh, he really struggled in some areas of academia. I mean, I remember I tell the story in the book about how he asked me to teach him how to divide. I mean, that's what it came to. He was like a junior in high school. And he didn't know how to divide. And I was the son of an accountant from Worcester. And so I knew how to divide. <laughs> and I taught him how to divide, but I don't know if it took. I mean, he ended up staying an extra year at Andover because he failed remedial math. But in so many other ways, he was, re I mean, he, there's no question in my mind, no question whatsoever. And I try to give some examples of this, he would have had a very, very powerful and important political career had he lived. And for all that wattage, he told a story that really did jump off the page again for me was walking with him. And he didn't talk about his father often, but I think this might have been, you might have related as the first time, maybe the only time he really did. What did he ask you? So uh, we lived in what was called the Rabbit Pond Cluster at Andover, which is, uh, you know, the clusters were these grouping of dormitories. And it was literally near a pond called Rabbit Pond. Uh, and one day we were walking around the pond for some reason. I have no idea why. And uh, one day, you know, he just turned to me and said, do you think my father was a good president? And I was, you know, literally stunned. I mean, I was 17 years old. We were basically the same age, and I had no idea why he was asking me this, why he thought that I knew would have a good answer or why what I said would matter one way or another anyway. I mean, historians by this point had written volumes and volumes and volumes on this subject. Why he had asked me, I don't know. And then one, one of his closest friends, Ed Hill, who had uh, been at Andover with us, who was one of the great narrators of that section of the book. Uh, I told this story to, and he said, that is perfect, John. That is classic, John. He he obviously looked up to you. He thought of you as uh, uh, somehow, uh, you know, senior to him, a senior leader. Uh, and so he really sort of wanted your advice and trusted you and sort of was solicitous of your opinion. For what reason? Who knows? And and then Ed said, and, and it would have been a perfect John F. Kennedy Jr. story if he had then said, okay, let's race the rest of the way around Rabbit Pond till we get back to the, to the dorm. Bill, I can't allow this interview to conclude without asking for you to recount and provide deeper insight into an aspect of John F. Kennedy Jr., which I didn't appreciate, which was an almost palpable hunger for risk hmm. and a willingness to accept intense risk. And it most vividly manifests itself in your narrative in this obsession with kayaking and this crazy trip that he and three friends take in the Baltics. And then the trip that follows, which I want you to describe, which is in the Arctic, which is truly death-defying and something I had never heard of and quite frankly, wildly irrational. So could you walk us through that, please? It got to a point where I wasn't sure whether these things were apocryphal or true. Right. Okay. Sure. I, 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 you know, there's so much mythology about the Kennedys and, and less so to, about John because he was a real guy. Uh, but there was this story uh, of, uh, of him going with three friends to in this body of water in Scandinavia. And um, it just sounds like a treacherous trip every moment. And, and the only reason, again, I'm not sure if it's true, because the names of the three guys he went with uh, just meant nothing to me. 
And he wrote about it in the New York Times. But the guys he went with seemed like fictitious names. I don't know whether he made up the names or what, and I was never able to find them. Maybe they exist. I don't know. Uh, but he managed to survive that. But that sounded like beyond treacherous, just so un- unbelievably risky with, with being trapped in this cold water and hypothermia setting in. And it's one of the guys fell overboard. Fell overboard and, and, nearly, and, died. and nearly died. You know, it was frozen from the waist down. You know, they had to like thaw him out in the tent. So after doing all that, then the next thing you know, I hear that he's gone by himself kayaking to north of the Arctic Circle by himself for like 10 days. Sasha Chermayev, who's one, another one of the important narrators, told me this story, and I, I believe it to be true. Uh, uh, you know, she thought he's totally insane. Why is he doing this? He's going by himself. One move out of the boat and you're frozen. I mean, that's it. You're dead. Uh, but apparently, so the story goes, he gets to this one island in the Arctic Circle and he finds the, the bones of a baby whale. And he brings the baby whale bones back to the United States, to Martha's Vineyard, and Sasha makes a mobile out of the whale bones that is now at Redgate Farm, you know, Jackie's farm in Martha's Vineyard. So, therefore, I assume this is a true story, but I just don't understand the insanity behind wanting to do that. We know that ultimately that quality led to John's death, uh, as you mentioned, 20 years ago. As we said at the beginning, Bill, this is, uh, in our estimation, elegantly written, meticulously researched, and it's a beautiful and poignant book. And you close... Thank you. Um, You close with a quote from Ted Kennedy at the memorial service for for John, where his uncle at that point, the the aging senator who had delivered far too many eulogies for uh, Kennedys whose promising young lives had been uh, cut tragically short. And he paraphrased a 1919 poem by William Butler Yeats, lamenting the loss of a young friend's son. And he said, uh, what made us dream that he could comb gray hair. So on that, I wanted to give you final thoughts. What makes any of us think that we can comb gray hair? And you know, the three of us in this room have gray hair, so we're, we're lucky that we can do it. But, you know, that's the, frankly the point of the book. What makes any of us think? There's no, you have all this opportunity. All, all, every door has been opened to you. You, you know, you go to the most elite uh, private high school. You, but, you know, you don't get any guarantees about your life and how long you live. And, and you know, I was a student of uh, the existential philosophers uh, at Andover. When I go to Paris, I go and visit the graves of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, who are buried together. Uh, and I think about it a lot, about how to live every day as if it were your last. And it's that's sort of the existential philosophy, but very hard to do, right, as a practical matter. So it sort of sits there in the back of my mind and sort of gave me permission to write this book and to see if I could try to explain how just difficult it is to live your uh, life as if every day was your potentially your last. But, you know, we all know how difficult that is and really impossible that is. But uh, I felt that this book was a chance to think about that, think through that and, and remember my friends along the way uh, with hopefully not too many people being pissed off at me once they read the book. The book is called Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short. It's available this week. Bill Cohen, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for writing this book. And Bill, congratulations on your accomplishment. This is a story of fragility, opportunity, privilege, chance, caprice. Ultimately, though, it's just extraordinarily poignant, and I can't recommend it enough to the listeners of Words Matter Library. Well, thank you both very much. It's been a privilege and an honor to spend the time with you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.